All right, good morning. Welcome to the Alt Attitudes podcast. Today we're joined by Rehabs UK Managing Director Lester Morse once again. Morning, Lester. All right. So we're hearing an awful lot on the news at the moment about vaping. We've covered it. We've covered the ideas a few times and, and sort of seems to be peak of the zeitgeist at the moment. And I know yourself, Lester, it's sort of triggered some ideas behind this concept of harm reduction. Um, and vaping kind of seems to con- like wrap that whole concept up, up in you know, what's going on at the moment. So, you know, vaping as opposed to cigarettes being, uh, being less harmful. Uh, and that's actually an issue sort of in itself yeah. that we want to discuss. So, yeah, if you give us your thoughts on that, that'd be great. Yeah, well, I don't know, um, like, harm reduction is like the philosophy that, that's um, been introduced into a lot of countries uh, of... Um, maybe you could even get it out and have a look. It's different ways of... a different approach of dealing with drug addiction by sort of being less judgmental, you know, not... Ex- Expecting people to uh, be abstinent before treatment and stuff like that. <clears throat> so I'm not quite sure whether the point that I wanted to make had much to do with that in that sense, but just in the idea of um, the idea of harm reduction in things like you're saying, in the, the less harm from vaping than nicotine. Or less harm from alcohol by using cannabis, and less harm using nitrous oxide than other drugs. I think that it seems to me that because again, I just wrote an article, got asked to write an article yesterday um, for a newspaper about um, the growing numbers of people that have anxiety and depression that they're noticing are using nicotine and cannabis. So now they actually are noticing that that there is a rising, a growing amount of people that have got anxiety and depression. And um, that's always been something that I've kind of tracked to a degree because it's even like when you work in the addiction treatment field and especially in rehab where people are generally there coming to be removed from um, chemicals a lot of them are taking antidepressants and um, other sort of medications along them lines and some people seem really over medicated and uh, and I always questioned what do they do good or harm especially in that field and so you know I've sort of done this before where you say to people you know in in groups you sort of ask them who went to the doctors at the worst time in their life and everybody puts their hand up Um, who got prescribed high-powered sedatives and antidepressants everybody puts their hand up who got better nobody put their hand up and I've done this to quite a few hundred people. Who got worse? Everybody put their hand up. Which seems strange to me that you'd be being given medication that's actually making you worse. And even I noticed reading the um, the twelve step literature that that there was a couple of lines that said in nineteen thirty seven 
that the, the, one of the, 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 the stories says, I went to the doctors who prescribed high-powered sedatives and then the trips to the asylums began. You know, that people have like, they go in there because they've got a chemical um, dependency problem and what they're being given to address that problem is more chemicals. And so in the last 20 years, part of the harm reduction is actually sort of almost giving people chemicals and, you know, they want to increase that to, you know, consumption rooms, shooting people up. Now, again, it's quite a heated debate, and I'm not sure whether I'll... Well, I guess I'm going to get involved in it by even just saying this publicly. And it's, it makes me stomach churn, honestly. It's like it's so much anxiety, because it is such a heated, heated debate. But, but I can't help get away from the realisation that the more chemicals that you give people, the more overdoses. Because again, overdosing, the very name of it, isn't it? Is you've overdosed. You've taken too greater a dose of medication. And we're facing, in the last 10 years, um, rising overdoses. Now, I'm not... I, I don't believe for a minute... I just don't have the statistics, but I don't believe for a minute that then people only have one substance in their system. So I, I think that, like, with Amy Winehouse, for example, that, you know, she died apparently from vodka, but I've read some articles that said that she was also being given eminevron which is what we used to call liquid alcohol, for helping her to detox. Now, the toxicology report never got released, but I wouldn't mind betting that it wasn't just vodka, even though the amount of vodka that she was probably consuming was enough to kill a regular person. But I would say that there probably was eminevron and other medications in her system that's causing the overdose. You know, when I worked in a in a in a night shelter and a day centre for homeless people about 20 years ago, one thing I noticed is how much medication they were all being given. You know, they were being given like a lot of Valium, which they seemed to think they could take handfuls at a time with immunity to it. They were being given a lot of antidepressants. And they were being given lots of methadone, plus they were all drinking lots of white lightning and strong ciders. And outside the doctor's office, funny enough, they had a tree with all the people that had died that used that service. And one thing I noticed, they were all his patients. Now, none of them died from cancer, car crashes, liver failure. They all died through overdose. They just weren't waking up. You know, when you worked there, you would hear, oh, Tim died. They found him slumped down underneath the, the subway. Peter died. They found him in the morning in his chair. You know, that was kind of what you were hearing. And, and I knew that 
that they were taking just ridiculous amount of substances and most of them substances were being supplied by medical professionals to people that were you know it said quite clearly on the packaging of the which I used to try and show them and the doctors I would show the doctors and say look you're giving them these medications he's an alcoholic and it says quite clearly here in bold black writing do not drink alcohol and the doctors would say yeah but I tell him not to drink and he's like he's an alcoholic <laughs> what, he, he can't you know oh it's strange mate again even like you'd go to the, um, the drug uh, agencies and say look this guy needs help and they're like well he doesn't turn up to his appointments what <laughs> one guy I said he was living in such a terrible terrible he was a postman he did he's living in complete squalor totally bewildered um on prescription medication and alcohol and uh, I went into the services and said look you got to help him I said he just doesn't turn up to his appointments and so I went and got the guy. I said, come on, I'm taking you down there. I said, get dressed. He put no socks on, odd shoes. His shirt was buttoned about four buttons out. His trousers are open. His knob was hanging out his flies. He had that alcoholic hairdo where he'd been lying and being sick. It was just all like gelled up with sick I took him his fingers were like brown up to about there I mean this guy's house mate he was unbelievable I took him there and I said look I said what day is it he didn't know what day it was so what month he didn't know what month he just knew the year I said, how's he supposed to turn up to appointments? Don't even know what day it is. And I said, look, if I give you lot 60 mil of meth, handful of Valium, bottle of white cider, see if you turn up for work tomorrow. It's almost like they're on drugs. They're not going to keep appointments and time. It just seemed... Like, absurd, like, and then it's your own fault because you're not turning up for the help and for your appointments. And so I don't know whether that that system... So, so even this morning, come up on my um, LinkedIn feed that, that um, antidepressants have risen again. I think there's something like 80-odd million prescriptions, 40 million, 80, 60 million prescriptions. It equates to about 8 million people, and it's doubled since the last 10 years. It's just going up every year by like 5 10% that people are going on to antidepressants in our country. And uh, again, like this article with the anxiety, it's like, 
you know, I've been doing school talks for, for quite a few years, but I've noticed that, you know, at the last school talk I did at a university, the teacher pulled me aside and said, so many of them are full of anxiety and on antidepressants. You know, and so there's a, there's a massive rise in children vaping using nicotine, which is a very powerful mind-watering substance. There's a massive use in people using antidepressants. We've got massive rises in drug deaths. And, you know, I started thinking about, you know, about the vaping and about the nitrous and you sort of read a bit about it. And I think one thing it all has in common and, you know, even, you know, like a lot of sort of Joe Rogany sort of stuff, it's almost like they're making drugs more acceptable. And so I, what, what I'm thinking is if you, if you stop people being afraid of the harms of drugs, and, and again, this is always the argument for the against harm minimalization that if you legalize it, more people are going to do it, which I, I think is true. I mean, quite a lot more people die of nicotine than heroin, and a lot more people die of alcohol than cocaine. I mean, a lot more. You know, the legal drugs. I should think even medications a lot. The, the legal drugs are doing far more damage. I mean, I don't think anything is doing more damage in society than alcohol. I think if you actually recorded all the damage that alcohol does in all of its nuances and all of its um, forms, it's, it's a mass weapon of mass destruction, alcohol, on the world. And I'm not against it, it does a lot of good, people enjoy it, and, but it is a weapon of mass destruction. So I think what's kind of happening at the minute is people are not realising the harm that nicotine, cannabis, alcohol and drugs actually have on people's lives. And I think there's a, almost like a perfect storm brewing in our country of chemical dependency because it's just all rising at the moment and I think at the heart of that is people really aren't talking about the harms that it can cause you so you know you can be well informed but one thing I knew growing up that I don't know what it was, but even like the heroin addicts, there seemed to be this romantic idea. I think even the film Train Spotting is sort of distressing to watch, but there's still a romantic idea about it. You know, and I think that people, for some reason, they really want to alter their minds. There's a, there's a rise in um, psychedelics, even countries legalising it and talking about microdosing and and I think the more they pro sorry, man. So I just feel I, I totally hear all where you're coming from, and I kind of just want to just tackle the thought that 
like you say, alcohol does good for some people and some drugs do good for some people and there's people will always find some way of disassociating. We had a little bit of a conversation the other day and it could even be things like food or social media. And there's always a way for us to disassociate. But I think what you're sort of getting at there is that we're really lacking any education around these harms. There's always going to be harms in the world. There will always be hardship and, and tough times. But there's no... Just giving somebody something else to be obsessed over or something else to suppress isn't the answer, right? It's sort of what you're saying. We need we need education around how to deal with these feelings and you know how to manage these substances. Yeah, well, when addiction's treatable, and most people that I've met that have been prescribed antidepressants, I mean, this is again, it's, it's not as simple as this. But it's not a lot more complicated either. That even to the, you know, the people that say, look, I've got depression. But you can clearly see when you're with them that they drink too much coffee. Again, this isn't across the board. It's not a judgment. It's just this case of saying there's other ways to treat depression when you feel depressed. So I think most depression is very healthy emotion that I've come to that conclusion. Now, look, people have um, proper mental problems that's causing depression, but most people I've met don't. They, they put the label depression, but they really, you can see that they're not equipped mentally or emotionally to overcome their problems. So, you know, even to the, to the, to the end of the, 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 the part of the problem where you notice that they drink a lot of stimulants. You know, they use a lot of sugar. You know, they use, um, you know, the amount of times I've said to people like, look, how much coffee are you drinking? No wonder you've got anxiety. Look at the stimulants. You know, and again, anxiety is not a mental illness. It's part of you that's telling you that you need to do something. You know, everyone gets anxiety. If, you, if you've got an exam coming up, you get anxiety. If you've got to go and do public speaking or, you know, certain things that cause you anxiety. You, you, but you grow through it if you've got the ability to do that, if you've got the mental capacity and if you've got the tools to do that, you, you actually can grow through these experiences. So... A lot of the times, these people you can see, it's like, look, you've been depending on chemicals to get you through, which means you haven't developed a very strong neural network. You've got a very weak um, nervous system because you've not developed the insulation on it. And so you're very sensitive. And as you're going on in that path of not actually learning how to face life's traumas and ups and downs naturally, you're not developing and you're becoming weaker because the older you get, the more demand gets put on you. And if your nervous system can't cope with it, you're going to be crushed, crumble, or you're going to go into trying to avoid everything. So you need to develop a strong nervous system and so all of these people with depression and anxiety is because they're becoming very weak. 
you know, it's kind of like, it's to make it simple, if if you went to the doctors and said, oh, doctor, I've been lying in bed all day and I, and I, and I, and I go to the shop and, and I can't pick up a bag of shopping and, and it makes me feel depressed. Now, what he should be telling is you need to go down to the gym. You need to start exercising and developing your muscles. But he doesn't. He says, oh, I, just, I feel depressed. He's like, well, he gives you a painkiller. The trouble with painkillers is they do relieve the discomfort. But there's another way of relieving the discomfort. And it's developing the capacity for that issue to not be uncomfortable anymore. But that's going to take some work. And so, you know, when you say to people, look, you're using too much coffee, too much sugar, too much stimulants. No wonder you're depressed. A very healthy person, if they had your diet and didn't exercise and didn't do things that were stimulating and didn't sleep at night because they were taking too many stimulants and wasn't exercising and wearing their body out enough, that the most healthy person in the country would feel depressed. And so, but you're thinking that that antidepressant's not going to fix you. It's just the painkiller. You need to develop some parts of your character, some parts of your personality, some different attitudes in the way that you approach life. You've got to become a bit stronger. That's almost offensive to people saying that. That you're weak, man. Yeah. That you're emotionally un unweak. You're like a child because you've not developed any strength on your nervous system and so you're becoming anxious over nothing because you're you're not willing to face and overcome like that book feel the fear and do it anyway that's almost like oh you're abusing people by saying that to them just let's look up and make it easy for them and and I, and, I, and and again i just think it's creating a perfect storm of drug dependency in their country that people are actually becoming weak and expecting easy. And, and again, I'm just so not... When you work in addiction treatment, it's the people that you see that are willing to start facing life on life's terms, as we say, that they're willing to cross that bridge of saying, Do you know what, I'm going to stop using these chemicals or these behaviours and I'm going to find better ways of dealing with my problems and, uh, and allow myself to redevelop the capacity to overcome so these problems are, are not problems. And even if it still feels uncomfortable, it's not going to turn me back. It's not going to stop me doing it. So more than anything, I think most people need personal development far more than therapy. I think a lot of people going into therapy is like, I don't... I think you need to go and find a, uh, a life coach rather than a therapist. I think you need someone to help motivate you. Because, again, it's like you kind of got to be in it to win it, naturally. 
See, naturally, we're supposed to develop. You know, it's in either way. That that guy that I said that I took into the took into that place. You know, I I was trying to tell him, look, if you don't do something, you're gonna end up living under a bridge. He used to work in the post office. He had a house. He lost everything. And he's like, oh, I can't live under a bridge. I can't be homeless. And he's like, mate, you will adapt. You, you will adapt. But you also see the same thing. I see the homeless people that start putting themselves in difficult situations, going to college, developing. Do they adapt too? It's funny, I was listening to something on a, on a, on a podcast. It said, if you take a millionaire or somebody successful and make them homeless, in a short period of time, they become successful again. But take a homeless person and make them a millionaire, and in a short period of time, they'll probably be homeless again. <laughs> and so I think that, I think there's a truth in that. I think it's about your mental capacity, your emotional capacity is going to determine do you succeed or fail? And yeah, you know, it can be I'll... really difficult to step back, can't it? You know, as 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 a person, if you're like you say, whether you're the homeless person or the millionaire, or whether you have a job that's causing you anxieties, it's really difficult to step back from that. I know there's something called the sunken cost fallacy, where you've invested so much time into something, even if it's going wrong, you feel like you can't change because you've you've put so much into that that particular lifestyle or career or toxic relationship uh, or maybe you've done your medication for x amount of time and you feel like you can't come off of it now so i think you're right getting somebody like a therapist or a life coach somebody who can some support network that can look at the bigger picture and step back and say look this is what your life looks like these are your weak points there are changes you can make but it's not easy and it's scary that, well that's the hardest thing for me working with quite a few thousand people now over three decades is encouraging people to not change the way they feel um, or make a different decision when they're uncomfortable that, that, that's probably but, but the people that actually start to accept being uncomfortable but allow themselves to go into situations that, that are difficult for them and then start making changes. Well, I love the 12-step program because, again, it teaches you how to take personal inventory to you, gives you to, to really look at what your problem is. Because, again, it's about responsibility, which, again, it just seems like people just not being taught to take responsibility. I don't even hear it on the news. It's always... It, it drives me nuts. They're like... Oh, the children are stabbing each other. What are the government going to do? It's like, well, what are the parents going to do? You know, there's, like, there's no personal responsibility. They say, look, you, it's your ability to respond is the problem. Yeah. But that's... This, the, the fact that when you do infantry, you're seeing you're struggling in this area, it shows that you've not got an ability to respond in any healthy or successful way so so then our goal should be not to pain kill you because you're I don't want to say the word inadequate but underdeveloped it's to say look the solution is which we call the corrective measure 
is we need to get you developed. How do we develop you? Which again is why I believe environment is king. You know, if I go in a place that they've got all the fancy stuff but there's no recovery, it's like, well, you're not going to get recovery if it's not in the environment, which is why we try and get people to go to recovery environments. Because you're encouraged in recovery environments not to quit. Because one of the things is that, you know, the pressure can really build in your life. And, you know, the first time I knew I'd overcome my addiction was when I had a traumatic event, my sister dying. And the first thought that came into my head was I'm glad I don't drink. Not I need a drink or I need a cigarette. I just felt so grateful that I didn't want it, that I wasn't drunk because I knew my family descended into trauma. And I thought I could see myself drinking, coming through the door drunk, making their lives worse and making it all about me. But in that moment, I was able to support my family, which is what I would want to do. And so I realised that, you know, in the early part of my recovery, I used to go to AA meetings and this was astonishing to me, Matt. I would say, I can't believe how bad I feel, but I don't want to drink. I don't want to take a drug. It was like a miracle, because that's what the book says. It says, you know, that the problem gets removed from you on the condition that you work this programme and I worked the programme and I started noticing not that my old life was wonderful, because it wasn't. It was difficult. I still had a lot of emotional and mental disorders and probably still got a handful. My life goes hard. I had two years from three years in recovery to five years in recovery. I was depressed every day for two years. I went to the doctors, he was trying to give me antidepressants. He's like, I don't want antidepressants. I ended up learning to meditate more and realising, look, you've got to change the way you're thinking. And so I started doing that. But that was always the amazing thing to me, is how difficult my feelings can be but my head tries to think of more positive ways, whether it's, you know, I can't afford to be resentful, yet I'm a very resentful person. So I'm forever trying to stop myself being resentful. I get a lot of anxiety, I worry a lot. I have to, but I know that it's being created by my thinking. Now I can dumb down my thinking with medication, which I don't, I choose not to do, or I can start, looking at why am I worrying, is the worry, you know, sometimes I think it's realistic to worry, like anxiety and worry in this world, it's like, you know, I always can have a, through periods of this impending sense of doom, but that wouldn't be an out of place feeling in this world at the minute, would it? But again, I don't want to live in that feeling, so, you know, through spiritual practices, I've got an alternative you know, I'm not cured. It says you're not cured of addiction. Because, again, I don't think the addiction is the substance. I think the addiction is, you know, 
um, that I think that the substance is going to resolve my problems, and it doesn't. It's not like, you know, antidepressants are not like antibiotics. You know, antibiotics kind of get rid of infections. Antidepressants don't get rid of depression. You know, they don't fix you. But the fact in my head, the head of a an addictive personality, that when I get an uncomfortable thought or feeling, the first thought that comes in my head isn't to take a drug. Now, don't get me wrong, every now and then, out of the blue, for some reason, something new may happen in my life. And I've noticed, not for a long time, but it did shock me a little while back that I can't remember what it was, but I sort of something different happened that I'd not been accustomed to. And I, f I felt uncomfortable and the first thought I had was, have a cigarette. Now, I haven't smoked in 27 years, but still my body thought nicotine would be the, the relief. I mean, you can get that, mate, when I was single and, and I didn't realise I felt lonely. And, I, and, I, and for no reason at all out of the blue, I'm walking through Asda's buying food and I don't, don't, I don't remember feeling lonely. I don't remember thinking lonely, but I was buying my dinner. So I guess I was buying it for myself. And all of a sudden, it's like this overwhelming suicidal thought come into my head. And I thought, man, that was a powerful experience. All of a sudden, I felt suicidal. And when I got home, because I've learned to meditate over three decades, I thought I'd better see what, where that come from. So I sat myself down and went into my meditation and took myself back to that moment in Asda's. And what I realised was, which I never knew until that moment, that I actually felt lonely. But I didn't realise that I'd been lonely all my life and what a traumatic and uncomfortable feeling that was. And so what this part of me that we call the ego that's trying to protect me, instead of letting me feel this terrible feeling or emotion of loneliness, it, it, it threw this idea of suicide at me you know like they say like anger is a secondary emotion anger is usually covering over what you're really feeling and do you know the funny thing is what I'm usually really feeling is love but love hurts especially when you're dysfunctional and so for example if I care about you and you let me down I feel hurt because I care about you. But if I'm in a healthy place, I go, oh, I feel really hurt. And then I'd phone you up and go, oh, Matt, I, I felt really let down, mate. I felt really hurt. And then you'd probably go if you're healthy, oh, I'm sorry, mate. I didn't mean to make you feel like that. You know, I love you. You, know, you restore yourself but when you don't have that process 
that feeling of love and hurt comes out. You're like, that, Matt, I fucking hate that, Matt. I'm never talking to him again. I'm never putting myself in that position to let him do that to me again. It's an ongoing process that I'm in. That, that my love has expressed itself mostly in anger all my life. I'm a very sensitive person. But when I learn to express it in telling people, not in an angry way, how I feel, they usually restore that. Not always. Sometimes they're like, well, I think you're a prat and I don't want to hang around you anyway because you're too needy or whatever. And it's like, well, that hurts, but I could do something with that. But it's about learning how to balance me chemicals out with spiritual practices like forgiveness and understanding and patience and tolerance and rather than with medications because I think if you don't learn how to balance your emotions on the inside you generally look outside whether it's chemicals or behaviors or porn or gym or you tend to try and balance your internal feelings with using external so the whole world's a bit of a drug to a degree but the truth is you can learn to balance your own emotional state without taking that stuff but while you're on that stuff that's not a possible process it's just not possible but more and more they seem to be trying to promote the people that you can develop redevelop your neural network while you're on certain medications and I don't think that's true I think I've noticed that certain medications actually stop you from developing like methadone I think methadone actually blocks you from developing it may improve your situation but you're going to be stuck in that situation you're not going to develop well, they're all the tints and buffers to they're yeah, sort of tints and buffers from from your perception of the world, aren't they? It's just uh, yeah, it's just going to make your make your true perception of it that much more difficult. Yeah, well, the way I kind of look at it is, if you like develop naturally from a child, and if you imagine that you know your nervous system is a hair, and when you're sensitive as a child, that's why they keep a lot of responsibilities from you because you're not developed enough to deal with it. But when you have a problem, you go home and you go, oh, Freddie called me this, and your mum would go, well, maybe Freddie was having a bad day. And, you know, they start developing an insulation around your nervous system. Because what you, what you want, ideally, is to take in information from your experience of the world. You want to be able to collect that information, that data, you want to be able to analyse it accurately and then respond to it correctly. And that's a well-adjusted person, that they're taking in all of the data from their, their nervous system, all their emotions and their senses. You know, we've all got a lot of senses, human beings. But most of us have no way of collecting the data and we're doing really bad analysis of it and so sometimes it becomes overwhelming 
And so they, we deaden it down, which is where the drugs and alcohol come in, the painkiller, but the painkiller is often a sign of underdevelopment. So taking the painkillers, in the short term, it's a kindness, but in the long term, it's destroying the person because, you know, life is the best teacher and the best developer. So we've got to go, which again is what I call the bridge, is to say, look, we've got to get that natural process happening. Now you're an adult, but you've got the emotions of a 12-year-old or less. So you're like a child, but that's fine. But we need to get you back into the natural process, which means now you've got to get your emotions. Because again, the, 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 the antidepressants and the painkiller become the insulation. But there's not a lot getting through the insulation. So you're not getting a lot of good data. You're being dumbed down. Even if you could... and. Um, if you did know how to analyse the data that you were getting and respond to it correctly, you wouldn't feel it because the insulation's too thick. You're protecting your nervous system. So you're, like, you're not feeling anything bad, but you're not going to be feeling anything good either. Not that's natural, because all the good feelings being produced is not natural, it's chemical. So sort of recovery in the abstinence sort of recovery the philosophy is right we need to remove probably slowly remove the false um, synthetic insulation on your nervous system and then life has to start happening again which means your nervous systems are going to get challenged and they are going to get pinged and they are going to get hurt but as that's happening, it's like going down the gym. As that process is happening, slowly you're figuring it out, you're learning better responses. But while you're doing that, you're building a natural insulation back over your nervous system. So it's going from the synthetic nervous system that the doctor's giving you to the natural nervous system that nature's giving you. But that in-between bit, it, this is crossing the bridge. It, it can be a little bit uncomfortable, but, but that pain is what's going to allow you to grow. And again, that's the hardest thing I find to explain to people in abstinent recovery, that, that you are going to go through difficulties, but that's a good thing because it's going to develop you as long as you keep adjusting yourself and learning and changing the way that you think about situations it's actually redeveloping the nervous system and it should get stronger and stronger which actually will give you more capacity because in this state you're not developing so you're kind of stuck and, and a lot of people's life rescind because they're like well I don't want to do a lot because it's too difficult for me and it makes me too uncomfortable so I shall rescind my life down to shelter, food, security, but I'm not going to actually live my dreams or, you know, it's almost like they, like, like I use them analogies, they're like a ship that's gone into a port and, and they're never going to leave the port again. They're never going to get to sail the world 
and have adventures and go to fantastic places and have incredible experiences because they're now incapable or afraid of the storms and, and, and the things that you, you know, smooth seas don't make good sailors. It's how do I learn to deal with the storms? And, and really that's the redevelopment of the nervous system. That's where you need good support. That's where you need, like I say, I think you're better off with um, life coaches than therapists for most people. I think most people just need some good support, some good information, and a willingness to go, do you know what? I don't like going down the gym, so I need someone that does to keep encouraging me and pushing me and pushing me, because if they keep pushing me, then and I keep going, eventually I'm going to end up with that six-pack. It's guaranteed. The only thing that's stopping me from getting the six-pack is that I don't want to go down the gym and do the work that it takes, but that's the same in all areas of life. Yeah. Lester, I Again, think that's a really perfect point to end it on there today. I think yeah. it totally makes a lot of sense what you're saying there, and I think a lot of people will hopefully be able to take something away from that because, um, yeah, you're dead right. The smooth seas don't make a, a, a good sailor. I think that's a metaphor for life, really, isn't it? Especially in the addiction worlds. Mm.